friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week, following the temptations of the Lord Jesus. This morning we find ourselves in Luke chapter 4, focusing on Luke 4, verses 13 through 30. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him, Jesus, until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard all these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, if you are a Dallas Cowboys fan and a Matthew Stafford fan, okay, if you are a combination of those things, then you are very disappointed as of this morning. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Last night, Matthew Stafford, hometown boy, 
of Dallas, Texas, and Highland Park, star of Highland Park High School, star of the University of Georgia, star of the Detroit Lions for the past 10 years. Last night, Matthew Stafford was traded for a bevy of picks, plus Jared Goff, and he is now on his way to being part of the LA Rams organization and not the Dallas Cowboys. Very, very disappointing to many because there are questions. Now, those of you who are not sports fans, okay, you're going to learn something this morning in addition to the biblical text. There has been speculation for a couple weeks that it's possible for our hometown boy to come home and quarterback the Dallas Cowboys because there's lots of questions surrounding Dak Prescott, the quarterback of the Cowboys, and people were thinking now that Stafford had been made available that maybe we could trade for him and that he would come home and everyone would be happy. Hometown boy makes good, not happening. But for the past couple weeks, people were speculating, what if not only that we would get Matthew Stafford to come home and quarterback the Cowboys, but what if his good buddy and fellow Dallasite Clayton Kershaw, what if, the, what if the Texas Rangers got him? So you would have Matthew Stafford as the quarterback of the Cowboys and Clayton Kershaw as the ace pitcher for the Texas Rangers? Oh, that would be perfection. Because who doesn't like the fact when the hometown boys make good? Who would not love for those two individuals, if you were born and raised in Dallas, to come home? Right? That would have been a wonderful story. Would you agree? It's not going to happen now, but it, but it, but it, was, it was okay to dream for, for a few weeks. Okay? So with that background in mind, knowing that most people absolutely love it when their hometown boy makes good. Like, in fact, like Neil Armstrong is from a small little town in Ohio, and I mean, he's almost deified there as being the first man to walk on the moon. So how is it? It's never made sense to me why Jesus was so quickly and thoroughly rejected in his hometown. Given that people typically love it when hometown boy makes good, why was that not the case in Nazareth a number of months into the ministry of Jesus? I want to tell you that a straightforward reading of the text doesn't make it obvious when and why things went so wrong for Jesus in his hometown synagogue. So let's look at the text for a few minutes, you know, and, 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 and um, do a little discovery work, a little investigation into the text, and see if we can figure out what went wrong, why it went wrong, and when it went wrong, and what we can learn from that. Okay, so back up. Verse 13 and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, from Jesus, until an opportune time. And then what Luke does, unlike Mark and Matthew, Luke fast-forwards a bit, okay, into the middle or the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And so Luke is going to take this account of Jesus in his hometown in the synagogue as, like a, as a template as a foreshadowing of everything that's going to go on in Jesus's ministry. So it provides kind of a bookend, the front of Jesus's ministry, and the same thing that happens here is going to happen at the end of Jesus's ministry. And so in Luke's mind, this is like a decisive kind of foretelling of all that would happen in Jesus's ministry. So 
After the temptation, Jesus goes out. He ministers in Galilee, an area around the Sea of Galilee. There are a number of towns around the Sea of Galilee, you know, because it was based on, the, on, on fishing and various trades there. So, verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And notice what comes next. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Why was that the case? Well, if you read Matthew and whatnot and some of Mark, you understand that Jesus did a variety of miracles. He did, according to like the Gospel of John, mighty works in various places. And so Jesus, he was famous at this point. He was well known at this point. People were beginning to dare to believe that the Messiah had come. Remember, what were the people's view of John the Baptist initially, if you can remember? People were thinking that he might be the Messiah. And John went out of his way to articulate that he was not the Messiah, but that the Lord Jesus was the Messiah, and that he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandals. So John's imprimatur on Jesus' ministry, combined with the power of his preaching, combined with the mighty works and the miracles that Jesus did, I mean, there was a ground swell of support and, and hopefulness and optimism surrounding his ministry. That's the backdrop to this, okay? I can remember when I was in middle school, I've told you before, my childhood sports idol was Michael Jordan because he was from North Carolina. You talk about hometown boy make good. There's really not a better example of that. I can remember my father taking me to what was the old Charlotte Coliseum when I was in middle school, and there would be these kind of preseason games, and I can remember the Citadel came, Furman came, Chapel Hill came, and I can't remember the other little sheep that was led to slaughter that came, and these were all really tune-up games for the mighty Chapel Hill, and I can remember that was the first time I got to see Michael Jordan in the flesh. I mean, I was just in awe as a boy thinking about this mythical figure. That's what it was like. That times a hundred was what it was like when Jesus came to preach in his own synagogue. If you look at verse 15, prior to him getting to Nazareth, it said he taught in their synagogues, meaning through the region, being glorified by all, by acclamation. He is very special. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now there are many fascinating things about this particular description from Luke. What we're doing right now in terms of our order of worship and our liturgy much of what we do in worship, okay, is informed by the synagogue system in Israel that evolved during the time of captivity when Israel was in Babylon. And so when Israel went to Babylon, when thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews were taken from Jerusalem and Israel into Babylon, and then before that, from northern Israel, when the Assyrians took thousands of Israels away, that's called, do you know what that was called? The Jewish dispersion. So now you have thousands and thousands of Jews outside of their homeland. In order to survive, the synagogue system 
became a necessity. The word synagogue literally means a gathering place. And so in order to retain their identity and their way of life, to, to stay connected with the laws of Moses, they developed synagogues, local places of worship. They were unlike the temple in that there were no sacrifices. Okay, but they would sing and they would enjoy communal meals. Okay, and the word of God would be read and applied. Probably not like today's sermons, much to your chagrin. They were probably shorter, okay, and more targeted. And by Jesus' day in the first century, synagogues were the hub of religious life in Israel. And so there would be rulers of the synagogue. It's fascinating. You ought to at some point do a study of synagogues throughout the New Testament and what you can learn from various sections of the New Testament about the way that synagogue life went. And then we learn from Josephus and others, and there's a lot of material. So there would be a ruler of the synagogue, and local rabbis would teach, or if someone was well-known, they could be invited to teach. And that's what's happening here. Jesus had not received any formal rabbinical training, but he was viewed, in terms of popular people, the opinion, as a rabbi. And so he was invited to speak. And the speaker would be allowed to choose a text. Though the text doesn't say it, Jesus would have asked, may I please have the scroll of Isaiah? Okay, and they would be in these long scrolls. Like imagine how long it would have taken, you know, maybe for Jesus not very long to like unfurl the scroll, okay, um, and figure out exactly where he was and get to the section he wanted to get to. So he unfurls the scroll. That would have been pretty dramatic. Okay. Jesus of Nazareth, the most famous person in the history of Israel, is here. He's in your synagogue. He's unfurling. I like the word unfurl. He's unfurling the scroll of Isaiah. He gets to chapter 61, and he quotes verses 1 and 2. Let's look here. Verse 17, second half, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. He's going to quote from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, notice the pronoun, the me. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so, in the context of Isaiah, there are what are called these servant songs that by Jesus' day were viewed to be messianic. God was sending a servant. He would send a servant in the future to deliver on all the promises of God. And so Jesus is clearly assuming the posture of the servant. And he is quoting this text from Isaiah 61 with reference to his own ministry, which would have been unbelievable, everything that's coming together. Do you remember the context of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2? Okay, what did that have reference to originally? Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, originally had reference to the Babylonian captivity. So Isaiah is, is foretelling, he is predicting, he is prophesying about the Babylonian captivity. What's amazing about Isaiah is not only does Isaiah 
prophesy about the fall of Israel to the Babylonians, do you know what's stunning? Isaiah predicts the name of the people that would ultimately defeat Babylon and set Israel free. Cyrus, he even names Cyrus, okay? This is 200 years before Cyrus would set the people free. So anyway, Isaiah 61 is all about foretelling, foreseeing a day when Israel would be subjected to captivity and then they would be delivered and set free from their captivity. Now look at uh, verse 19. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Isaiah is envisioning a day when the people are delivered from their captivity and they're going to experience the fullness of what the Israelites knew as the year of Jubilee. Every 50th year, something incredible happened. I'm going to pick on TJ for a minute. TJ is a wonderful businessman, but if for whatever reason, TJ would have made some oil and gas investments and let's say it wouldn't have gone very well, Let's say it would have gone south, and let's say he would have gotten himself into debt, and he would have asked Michael Breed to get him out of debt, and he would have put himself into indentured servitude under Michael. Michael, that may be a good idea. I don't know. Um, in the year of Jubilee, all debts wiped clean. All lands that you had to sell in order to you know, um, help your situation... Everything was returned to their original owner. All slavery, all indentured servitude, all of that was gone. Everything was reset back to the beginning. It was the embodiment of true freedom if you were an Israelite. So Isaiah is saying that the freedom from the captivity would be like the year of Jubilee. That sounds like pretty good news to me, right? Does that sound like good news to you? Yes. And so... By the time that Jesus was preaching, the people in his synagogue, and in fact Jews all over Israel, would have viewed that text, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, freedom from captivity, as applying to their situation as well. What was their situation? They were under the oppressive yoke of the Romans, a people even more powerful than the Babylonians. So this text, by Jesus' day, had taken on like newfound messianic meaning, and it applied to them equally. One day, they're going to be set free. From their captivity, they're going to gain their independence, okay? That's why every eye in the synagogue was fixed on Jesus when he sat down to teach on that text. They realized immediately what he was saying. He was associating himself with the servant song of Isaiah, and he was associating himself with these promises. And then Jesus says some of the most amazing words that have ever been uttered in the history of the world. He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, all oxygen would have just like been sucked out of the, I mean, people would have just been like, wow. Let's see the people's reaction. Verse 22, all spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? How do you interpret? Verse 22. Like, what are they saying to him? Okay, this would be like when Nate preached his first sermon and people collected in the foyer in the back and just said, Nate, great job, wonderful job. We're so glad to have you. 
It's exciting when one of your assistant ministers gets ordained and preaches their first sermon. You know, um, on the surface, it looks like they are, like, like go back up to um, verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. It looks like that's what's going on here. That they're saying, wonderful sermon, preacher. This is tremendous. That's not what was happening there. Because look at verse 23. Like, Jesus is the picture of graciousness, right? Imagine someone complimenting Nate on his sermon and him saying to that person, oh, you don't mean it. You slept through the whole thing. You know what I mean? Or I could, you weren't paying attention at all. Like, it looks like in verse 23 that Jesus is intentionally provoking them. It looks like he responds to their compliment and their graciousness with an insult. Look at verse 23. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, which was a way of saying, Okay, if you're so powerful and you're so good, what you've done in other places will do here, big boy. He goes on to say that almost directly. What we have heard that you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, prove it. Prove these claims. And then he said, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So question for you, what in the world happened between verse 22 and verse 23? Where in 22, it seems like on the surface they're giving him a genuine compliment. That they're interested in what he's saying and hopeful. And then he provokes them and pokes them, okay, into a conflict. I heard a fascinating explanation of what went on. What went on between verses 22 and 23 that I think is powerful in terms of his explanatory power. The explanation is this. What you read in 22, those are not complimentary words. They're not complimenting Jesus. In fact, in the verse 22 in the Greek, the adverb well, that is not in the text. That is a translation interpretation. If you look up the Greek, it says, like literally, and all testified about him, or all spoke about him. In other words, they responded to the sermon. They talked about the sermon. There is not a hint in that Greek of the fact that it, they spoke well of him. The Greek literally says they testified about him, they spoke about him, they talked about him. And then it goes on to say, and they marveled, or they were astonished, or amazed at the gracious words or the words of grace that came out of his mouth. Another interpretation of that is they marveled at the gracious words of Isaiah 61, not necessarily his words, okay? And see, Jesus knew what was really going on. He knew the people were upset. He knew the people were talking about him. And upset with him. So I ask you, what were they upset about? What do you think they were upset about? They weren't upset with what he said. They were upset with what he didn't say, or rather what he did not read. Okay, look with me. So verses 18 and 19, that's a quote from Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is equivalent to verse 18 of our text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty 
those who are oppressed. Again, that was originally Babylonian ca captivity. People were hopeful it would apply to them in their context. Then verse 19 is equivalent to Isaiah 61.2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But guess what? Isaiah 61.2 does not end there. There's another phrase that comes after that. Quote, not only to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, also to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus did not finish the sentence. He prematurely stops the quote. Okay? And then he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why do you think that so deeply offended the Nazarenes in his context. It offended them because salvation without justice, salvation without judgment is no salvation at all. Okay, when Isaiah, you can look it up later, Isaiah 61, verse 2, when it promises a day of vengeance to come, who do you think was in view? In the original context, Isaiah 61, it was the Babylonians getting their comeuppance. It was the day of recompense against the Babylonians, okay? And so the Jews in Jesus' day transferred that to Rome, to Gentiles, to pagans. The Jews were looking forward to the Messiah, delivering them, freeing them, giving the day of Jubilee, and dealing with their oppressors. And so they could not believe, they could not countenance a gospel without justice. Justice to those who had deprived them of their king, had deprived them of their independence, had deprived them of their way of life. Those people needed vengeance. This interpretation is supported and buoyed by what Jesus says after this. He knows their hearts. He knows what's going on. He knows he has offended them. And he's saying, you know, you're saying in your hearts and minds, physician, heal yourself. What you did in Capernaum, these mighty works, do now, big boy, if you're so powerful, prove it that you're the Messiah. He knows that's what's going on in their hearts. So then he quotes to them a truism from the Old Testament. He goes back to the Old Testament in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 5, when Elijah first... Let's go there. He knows what's going on. He knows what they're mad about. So he doubles down. Verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, he's like, you're mad that I didn't include vengeance on the Gentiles? He's like, well, that's not the first time this has happened. Verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them, none of those widows who were encountering difficulty, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile widow, a pagan widow. And so in response to the hardness of their hearts, God raised up Elijah to take blessing and mercy and grace to the Gentiles. And lest they think that was a fluke, he gives another example from 2 Kings 5 and Elisha. He says, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them 
was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. There were all these lepers in Elisha's day in Israel. Israelite lepers. And God didn't send Elisha to any of them. He sent him to show grace and mercy to a Syrian general named Naaman. Okay, then their response is much worse than just kind of taking initial offense. They've gone from anger to outright hatred. And they literally tried to throw him off a cliff. What angered them so? What angered them is Jesus wasn't saying God is showing grace and mercy now to Gentiles alongside of you. He was saying now, because you have rejected me, because you have rejected the gospel on my terms, the gospel's going to the Gentiles in place of you. And they tried to throw him off the cliff. So how does this relate to us, friends? They wanted salvation. They wanted to enjoy the graciousness of the gospel, freedom from oppression, freedom of captivity, the year of jubilee. They wanted that for themselves, and they did not want that grace and mercy to go to the Gentiles. They thought that would have been unjust all the ways that their people group had been oppressed by the Gentiles. That was unjust. That was not right for God to do that. That's why they rejected Jesus. If Jesus would have told them what they wanted to hear, they would have happily received him. But because he didn't, they rejected him. I saw a, um, saw an interview, well, last week, the famous talk show host Larry King. Larry King passed away. He had an incredible talk show ministry. I don't know how many decades. Was it 30 years, 40 years? Um, and for some reason, this showed up on my feed. It showed up, Larry King gave an explanation for why he wasn't a Christian, why he wasn't even a theist, why he didn't believe in God. And the explanation he gave was that he could not believe in a God who, in his estimation, would kind of capriciously allow so much evil and difficulty in our world. And he referenced Hurricane Katrina and a number of other disasters he had covered, and he just could not square in his heart and mind how there could be a God running the universe and those terrible, awful, you know, cruel things that happen in our world. And that's what was, it tripped up C.S. Lewis for many years. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, thankfully, C.S. Lewis dug in a little deeper. C.S. Lewis discovered that the sense of justice that he had inside was actually proof of the existence of God. The fact that C.S. Lewis was so troubled at the seemingly um, cruel and capricious nature of life, that seemed unjust. But C.S. Lewis realized there had to be a standard of justice that was being violated in order for his internal sense of justice to have any meaning. And that if God didn't exist, then none of it made any difference. And he knew in his heart that those things were hard and were difficult. And so he realized at the end of the day that there is a God and there is justice in this world. And he didn't have all the answers, but he was called to trust in the one who did. And that's what we're to do. Whereas the Nazarenes rejected Jesus because he did not offer a kind of gospel they were interested in, you know, he wasn't offering justice in the way that, that, that they thought he should. 
They rejected him, and Jesus moved on. This is a reminder. This is a reminder that the justice of God, the timing of God, the plans of God are very different than what we would do. Due to sin and finitude, we could never understand all the reasons that God is doing what he's doing, but we're called to trust. Isn't it amazing? What Jesus was proclaiming to them, the year of Jubilee has come, that you're about to experience true freedom if you trust in me. And they got so distracted what they perceived God wasn't doing, they didn't appreciate what he was offering. May we not be the same way when, you know, when difficult things happen or when you're struggling or when very difficult things happen to your friends or family members or whatnot. Friends, we need to even more, we need to double down in trusting in the Lord Jesus. Trusting in what he has done for us and not what we perceive he has not done. At the end of all things, he is going to make all things right. As Nate led us in our confession of faith. One day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. And all wrongs will be made right. Luke is presenting to us, beloved, a savior that we can trust. Pray with me, our gracious God and Father. We thank you and praise you for your word that is so rich and so wonderful and um, so, so filled with depth of meaning. Father, if we're honest, we are, we are just like the Nazarenes that rejected Jesus. We, we, we often say in our hearts that we will trust you if, we will love you if, we will follow you if. And there are no ifs. Father, in the gospel, we learn that we trust you, Lord Jesus, on your terms. Help us to be a people that do that. Help us to trust you, Lord Jesus, on your terms and trust that you have a sovereign, majestic, glorious plan that we can rest in. We pray this in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.